This podcast is produced by EnergeticCity.ca, your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To support local news and this podcast, go to EnergeticCity.ca slash join to find out more. This podcast was recorded on traditional Denizal land. Welcome to Before the Peace. I am your host, Jenna Moreland, and sitting next to me is Trey Lapashinsky, who is the co-host and producer of the podcast. I'm so giddy right now, Jenna. Why? Why? Because Why? we have so many things in the hopper, yes. upcoming announcements. We, we can't announce them right now. I know, I know. And I know we want to. It's so tempting. <laughs> but make sure you're heading to Energetic City on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, or Make sure you follow our Twitter handles. Yours, Jenna? At Jenna Moreland, J-E-N-N-A-M-O-R-L-A-N-D. And mine is at Trey Jordan 34 T-R-E-J-O-R-D-A-N. I almost didn't know how to spell my name there. And I actually just found out my Twitter handle from Jenna, who just, who just searched it for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll be posting lots on Twitter about what we have in the works and just about our episodes in general. So give us a follow and it'll be great. And for this episode, uh, we interviewed Sequa Heritage Society's Executive Director, Alyssa Curry. She was born and raised in Dawson Creek and has spent the last four years as the Executive Director for the South Peace Regional Archives in Grand Prairie before taking the position with the Society in June of last year. And this conversation that's coming up, it's a good one. Alyssa knows her stuff. She is a she nerd sure for artifacts and, <laughs> yeah. and history. And if there's anyone to talk to about Saqua, this is the person, other than Gary Oker and obviously all the uh, indigenous bands that own Saqua, such as, you know, West Moberly, Doy River, and Prophet River as well. We talked to Alyssa about her duties as executive director of the society and the upcoming community based field study led by the University of Northern British Columbia, taking place in May. One thing we can delve in on is that we're going to have special podcast episodes during the field study. We're going to be talking with archaeologists. We're going to be talking with some of the local indigenous people that are going to be there for the field study, as well as some of the students. It's going to be exciting. We're so stoked to be able to go there, take some pictures. We might throw up some videos as well. We haven't had as much visuals as we would like from our podcast, so this one is it's going to be a treat. And of course, this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of Troyer Ventures. Troyer has been serving our community and the energy industry with tank and vac trucks since 2000. Thank you so much, Troyer. They are built on the principles of hard work, service, and community, and they are proud to offer the financial support to make this program possible. All right, let's jump right in. Here is Alyssa from Saqua. I'm recording already. Oh, we are? I've been recording oh. for the past couple of minutes. Oh, the Don't worry. The bar I... is on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. I cut that all out unless it's super hilarious because the last episode I kept that on. Because <laughs> I say so and um a lot and uh... I made a comment like <laughs> So I was like, I was like, I'm keeping that in there because it's hilarious. I have to make a conscious effort not to do that. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. It is really hard. Yeah. Okay. So, so, okay. To start, we spoke with Gary Oker, who touched on the history and spiritual significance of Saquois, formerly known as the Tri-Lake Cave. 
What does the research and findings of Dr. Fladmark and Dr. Driver tell us about the cave dating back a thousand years or 11,000 years? Ah, so I'm actually, I'm going to correct you twice. Oh, okay. Uh, so, um, the archaeological findings yeah. that uh, were were found as a result of the previous excavations of the the cave um, find that it has been continuously used by humans, either occupied or or made use of for about twelve and a half thousand years. Oh, um, but that date is really interesting for a couple reasons because originally, when the cave was excavated, and based on the radiocarbon dates that were understood at that time. We thought it was about ten and a half thousand years. Okay. And so okay. actually, since uh, the eighties, when the cave was first excavated by archaeologists, they were was first excavated in the seventies, but properly in the the eighties, um, radiocarbon technology was was not quite as advanced as it is now. There was an assumption made that the the carbon that's used to measure the radiocarbon date of, a, of an artifact or an item uh, was fairly consistent over time. And since then, we now the, know that carbon in the atmosphere changes over time. And the further back in time we go, the less accurate those original radiocarbon dates are. Um, so thanks to some researchers that counted tree rings on some bristlecone prine in the, the California National Forest, we know that um, what was previously radiocarbon dated at about 10,500 years is actually closer to about 12,500 years. Wow. Okay. Okay. So who is Dr. Fladmark and Dr. Driver? So these are two very accomplished archaeologists from Simon Fraser University. Um, Dr. Fladmark was originally here in the 70s doing archaeological surveys of the Peace River Valley as part of the plans for the eventual dams that were built. And the cave actually falls outside of what the area that was originally intended to be surveyed for that. But during um, their informal discussions with some of the team, the local team that they were doing this work with a local indigenous man whose name I don't know if anyone knows that name I'd love to to hear who it is Um, but this local indigenous man said hey do you guys want to see a cave and they said yeah and so it was it was one of the last weekends that they were up for the field season and they decided that they would go and check out this cave and they did what's called a shovel test they dug down not very far and um, took some samples and said wow this is a really cool place it seems like it would have been a significant um, you know place on the landscape um, let's let's do some tests let's see what's there now the original tests that were done showed that the material they excavated was fairly recent And so they were kind of disappointed by that, of course. It's, oh, it's maybe not as old as we thought it was. Okay. But um, I'm going to introduce Richard Gilbert, Dick Gilbert, who is also a very accomplished archaeologist. And he was a member of that original team. And he really persisted, as did Dr. Fladmark, and said, no, we think there's more there. We think that there's more opportunity to to find out how old this is and, and what's going on there. And so the first uh, research excavation, formal excavation that takes place to the site happens in the 80s. And it's at that point that they dig down and they realize, wow, we actually have something really, really significant here. And so over the next, you know, several decades, 
Dr. Uh, Driver and Dr. Fladmark, who had both worked on various excavations at the site, um, as well as Dick Gilbert, who at the time was a grad student at the time of the very first dig. Um, they did the research and, and the, not only the original excavations, but also the research on the artifacts and materials that were excavated during those excavations. For the shovel, t- Between the shovel tests and the first excavation, why did it take a couple of years? Was that the process of getting it set up or was that the process of making the university like letting them know that this is something important that we need to go and excavate yeah so it's definitely the latter um it was actually about 10 years after that original shovel test that finally the first archaeological wow, it took that long excavation hey. and and it was at the insistence of dr Fladmark and um richard gilbert who said there's a really good opportunity here. We're sure of it. And so they were able to apply for funding and it was through uh, SHRC, the Social Sciences Humanities Council of Canada, um, that they were able to do those excavations. And it was during that 1983 excavation that they went down and found the really old artifacts that really kind of blew up in the archaeological community. And was that the last time that they dug down. So the last time um, there was excavations in the 80s as well as 90 and 91. Those are the last research excavations that took place at the site. Now since then um, after Saqua purchased the property in 2012, one of the very first things they had to do was make some repairs to the sewer system. And so at that time we did um, a heritage investigation permit which basically recognizes that we knew we were on uh, an archaeological site and wanted to ensure that any repairs we did weren't going to impact. And so there was a secondary, much smaller excavation during that. And it was essentially just monitoring the the space that was excavated for these repairs um, upper uh, on the upper part of the property. Was anything found? Absolutely. Okay. So, um, and that's partly what has, has confirmed for us this hypotheses that has been held for several decades that um, although lots of interesting stuff was found in front of the cave, there's really high potential for material to be excavated on top of the property above the cave. Wow. Okay. So we we do know that there's a lot of uh, information on the settlers in, in this area, like at the museum, uh, but we don't have a ton of information on an Indigenous perspective, uh, are there any plans to fill in that gap? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things is recognizing that that gap exists. Uh, I just paid a visit to the the museum this morning. They're fantastic uh, folks. They've got a lot of resources. But as you say, a lot of the material is focused on the settler history, or in the case of Saqua, on the archaeological history, which is really written typically from an academic perspective and is not very approachable to the average reader. So recognizing that that gap exists and recognizing there's work to be done is a really critical first step. The next step and something that we're hoping to do um, in the near future is to fill in that gap by talking with the Indigenous community that knows most about the cave and and consulting with the various experts and knowledge keepers within the Indigenous communities to help fill in some of those gaps. Uh, Now, you guys have a field study coming up in May. How, how will this potentially impact what we know about the site? Well, one of the things that we are hoping to accomplish during that thing or during the, the dig is 
understanding the the context of the cave. So most of the archaeological digs that have been done previously at the site were done in the gully immediately in front of the cave. So if anyone's been to the cave before, you're kind of standing on a little landing, there's a little rock on one side, and then you're facing into the cave. So it was in that gully that the original excavations were done. Um, but what they found in those excavations and what we have found in subsequent uh, digs at the site is that it's highly, highly likely the material that came or was found in that gully came from higher on the cave, from above the cave, and was mm-hmm. kind of washed down and settled into that area. Now, there's very little evidence of people actually living yeah, in that site specifically. It's a very small site. We haven't done all of the, the archaeological investigations yet. Um, but what's probably more likely, and particularly when you look at the site through an indigenous lens, is that if there's a convenient spot to hunt and oversee the landscape, it's actually above the cave. And you can look out on the surrounding landscape, on the, the lake, for example, on Fish Creek that's directly below that seems the more likely place for there to be evidence of of actual camps for yeah example. it's a good view up there yeah yeah and so one of the things that's that's really important about this future excavation is the opportunity to survey the entire property and to understand where those sites are that we can do future excavations and also where the places are that we want to avoid um, if we need to dig a hole for a a pit house or an outhouse we want to know that we're doing that work and doing those upgrades with as few disturbances as possible so what will take place during unbc's field study like what's the process so the process started many months ago (laughs) when we first approached unbc and said we want uh, modern excavations at the site but more importantly, we want a learning opportunity for the Deneza people to learn how to do archaeology on their own territory. As I said, these are the experts in this territory, on this land, um, but they're not necessarily equipped with the specific archaeological knowledge, the technical knowledge that's needed to do this type of work. So the field school is an opportunity to combine those goals into one and through that hands-on learning, we're going to have both university students and Indigenous community members do the work. And that will include everything from how to identify artifacts that are found, how to map the site, what types of things do we look for when we look for a potential archaeology site, for example. Of course, you know, an ancient cave is a really convenient spot to look for in ancient materials. But what about the other surrounding area? How do we know what areas we should be focusing on. So those are going to be kind of the initial goals. And then moving forward, we'll actually be doing those digs on the site um, and getting to shovel test, getting to um, screen for materials, learning how to identify the records that are there, and very, very importantly, learning how to catalog them so that future researchers can continue to do the type of research that's continued on on the materials excavated from the site way back in the 80s. That's still work that's being done. I'm curious, um, with the excavations that were done in the 80s and 90s compared to the, the uh, the field study, what's the difference? Is it just the educational portion? So different goals. Um, The educational component is a large part of that, but it's also being able to make use of 
the very best of modern technology. Archaeology has changed a lot since that first uh, excavation was done. And so we'll be able to use some of the modern techniques that weren't able to be used then. Uh, That's really important in terms of the future potential for the site as well, making sure that there's room for those future improvements that we don't even know exist yet. Has there been any pushback from community members about maybe not disturbing the site? From the Indigenous community members, our support has been very prolific. I think that um, there's recognition of the importance of the site and the importance about learning more about the site. Um, Where I think people are concerned, understandably, is those that either think the archaeologists are doing this without community input, which is absolutely not the case. Um, This was a, a dig and an opportunity that was instigated by the communities, instigated by Saqua. And so it's really important to understand that that the work that's being done is being done by and for the Indigenous communities that are here. Uh, It's also, I think, important for people to understand that Indigenous people have the right to protect and curate and care for their Indigenous cultural heritage sites as they see fit. And that's a right that is outlined in the UN Declaration of the Rights for Indigenous People. And in this case, the Indigenous communities want to learn more about this site, and it's their right to do so. And we're making sure that we're taking proactive measures to do that as responsibly as possible. So with that being said, in 2012, uh, Doig River, Prophet River, and West Moberly, they had purchased the sites. The, so from what I have, with my research and looking back on it, it seems like over the past couple of years, Saqua has been talked about more. And now you're finally doing the, the field study after the excavations were done in the 90s. Why is there that huge um, time gap? Was it because of the consultations with local indigenous bands? Um, was it because of community reception? Kind of, why has it taken so long, basically, for the Heritage Society to kind of get its footing and start to um, develop the site more? That's a great question. Um, these things take time. And uh, securing the funding to have the infrastructure in place, um, for example, even just the funding to, to hire a staff. Myself, I am the first staff member that Saqua has hired. Uh, having the operational support in place to support the infrastructure projects is something that takes a lot of time. And I think particularly now, there's more movements towards recognizing and therefore funding Indigenous cultural heritage. Uh, tourism right now is, is on the rebound, um, hopefully, mm-hmm. after, after a few really challenging years. And Indigenous cultural tourism is actually the fastest growing sector of tourism. And so it has taken time for the communities to know about the site, to learn more about the site. There has been a a lot of incredible groundwork that has been done by the board of directors and by the previous volunteers that have come before me to get us to the point where now we're really at that launching stage. You started as the executive director in summer of 2021. How big is this for you, like to witness something like this? 
This is a really incredible opportunity. Um, it's really exciting to see the work that goes into planning an archaeological dig. Um, although it was you know, just recently publicly advertised, um, it's something that has been many months in the making and a lot of work to see come to fruition. So it's really rewarding to see that um, come forward. And it's also really exciting for me on a personal level because I am an alum of UNBC and that's where I did my first degree. So to see that connection um, to the university come back full circle is is something that's really exciting. And how do you feel being a non-Indigenous person being the executive director? Well, it's a really humbling experience to be welcomed into the community and treated as an ally is something that is really validating for me. I recognize that I have, you know, a lot of shortfalls as somebody that was born and raised in Dawson Creek and didn't learn about the cave until I went off to university. And so there's lots of opportunities for me to do some personal learning and growth as I embark on this role with the communities and just recognizing that I'm not an expert here. And there are experts that exist. And those are the people that I need to draw on. Now that said, I do have strengths as a heritage professional and as somebody that has worked in the nonprofit sector. And so to me, being able to use those skills to make space for future growth for organization is really important. And I'm hopeful that, you know, the future executive directors of this organization will come from the communities themselves. And so it's really important for us to build the capacity in the communities for that future work to be done. Yeah, it, it seems the cave site and the society's center is aiming to be a focal point for education of the Deneza people. Uh, what else does the society have in store for the center and the cave site? Well, we have a lot of exciting things planned and, and currently underway. Uh, the biggest changes that we're making right now to the physical layout of the property is that um, we're making quite a few substantial infrastructure upgrades. We have some really fantastic public support and funding to make changes happen. Things like an amphitheater, which can be used for storytelling and drumming. Ooh, cool. uh, we're making the first floor will be uh, more inclusive and wheelchair accessible. We're going to be putting in uh, some new pit houses, which doesn't sound very exciting, but is, is a really important part of having the site accessible for the public and having it an inclusive space for the public. We're working with Spinal Cord Injury BC to do an accessibility audit of the site this spring. And all of those things are making sure that as we move forward for the space, it's a space that everyone can feel welcome to come to. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I took my kids out there and met you for the first time last year. And yeah, it's definitely not overly accessible right now um, to get down to the cave, but um, that's what you're talking about. That, yeah, exactly. And I mean, as part of our growth as an organization, we also have things like branding and a website and educational content because all of those things are also important for building up the organization and through that, the communities. Absolutely. So what was your first learning of the cave? <laughs> well, I was born and raised in Dawson Creek and um, my family has 
quite a substantial settler history in this region, came here in the 1920s. Um, so you might expect that I would have learned about it at some point during my childhood, and that's not the case. Like many people that are from here, I didn't know about the cave until I went off to university. Mm-hmm. And it was in uh, the very first day of a Canada Before Confederation course, a very introductory history course, where my professor made an offhand comment about the Charlie Lake Cave. And of course, being from here, I said, Charlie Lake. Yeah. Lake, hey, what? Fort St. John, <laughs> Charlie Lake. And he said, yeah, well, you know, you're from that neck of the woods. You've probably been to the cave. And I said, no, I'd never heard of it. And, you know, I remember I called up my mom and said, have you ever heard of the Charlie Lake Cave? Because she was born and raised here her entire life. She'd never heard of the cave. And my grandma, same thing, never heard of the cave. And so I was so fascinated by this piece of history that was in my own backyard or what I considered my you know, parcel of Canada that I'd never heard of before. And, and my professor said, well, it's one of the most significant archaeological sites in certainly in Canada, but possibly even North America. Wow. And I just was so embarrassed, and but fascinated. And so I actually wrote my research paper in that class about the Charlie Lake Cave. Oh, cool. And about, Full circle, and hey? about some of the research <laughs> that had been there. Yeah. And so it's a really exciting, like you say, it's a really exciting full circle back yeah. to working with the university. In this case, it's with the anthropology department. Um, but I still really feel that connection back to UNBC and that first experience learning about something that arguably I should have already known about. I'm yes. just so curious. And I, I just keep sticking in my head with you being born and raised in Dawson Creek and, and not knowing about the site. Why do you think that was? Why, why, no, no, not just for you specifically, but for people in the region, why do you think that was, it, was it just not a publicly known thing? Was, it was obviously like a huge find yeah, even back in the eighties, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So I think that's partly because the history of our region as it's written now starts at settlement and it continues from the pioneers onwards and that's a very important part of our history, but it's not the only part of our history. And I think working with, for example, the local school district and instilling those values at a younger age is really key to the next generation understanding the significance of the site. And those people go home and tell their parents or they come and they visit us on National Reconciliation Day and they learn about the site. And what we've found is that people are really eager to learn about the site. And many people are nervous because they've lived here and they've known about the site or they haven't known about the site. And now they're unsure about whether or not they can come visit us. And so something that I really want to stress to people is that we do welcome visitors. We love having visitors. Um, we just ask that when people come, they do so respectfully. And so there's there's going to be plenty of opportunities in the next year and a half, especially once we finish renovations. We, we do ask that people are patient with us as we set the site up so that it's safe for everyone to come and visit. Um, 
What's the best way for somebody to get in touch with you then? So they can contact me via phone, via email, or on Facebook. There's lots of ways to reach out to us. Um, honestly, if you drive up to the cave, there's a phone number posted with my number on it. So Is there like a certain amount of hours that people need to come within? So, um, not necessarily. Um, we do if people want to come and, and speak with me or speak with one of our community members. Um, typically, Monday to Friday is the best you know, times to get a, a hold of us. But if you just want to come and see the cave with your family, you can call. And as long as you have permission, you're absolutely welcome to come out on a weekend and see the site. Okay. Um, very cool. Yeah. So I, I'm curious as to the process of when an artifact is found, because you've found lots of artifacts. I saw the ones that were in the house up there. Um, but when, when something is found, Obviously, everything stops. What Then what happens? So um, during a coordinated dig, which is what we'll be doing, um, a lot of the process that takes place actually happens before you find the artifact. So it's mapping out the areas, understanding exactly geographically where everything is, what soil layers are present and below the soil, what other layers are present. So we can understand, for example those layers going back various years. So things like there'll be soil samples taken, there'll be very precise measurements taken. Um, and generally for the material that we'd expect us to find at Saqua, it would be what's called debitage, which is the material that comes off a stone tool during the process of making it. So um, what we typically see is a fluted point or an arrowhead. Um, and those are the really exciting sexy artifacts. Um, but, but most of what's found is actually the chips of rock that have come off of that piece of stone in order to create the artifact. And so um, those, because they're quite small, are often found during the screening process. So when, when a layer is dug up, um, you dig and you put into um, um, a sifter and, and you have a very narrow screen that will will show all of these little things. And that's an opportunity to to find these debitage or, or even a micro flake or micro blade, um, which is another type of artifact you might expect to find at Saqua. And then it's it's about documenting, it's about labeling, putting things in bags, and making sure that when they go back to the repository, which uh, currently is SFU, but we have plans to build a repository at Saqua, um, that those are all organized in such a way that they make sense, that they're documented in context. It's very important to understand in what layer of soil was this artifact found? Where was it found? What artifacts were found alongside it? Um, so that when, for example, you find a fully articulated raven skeleton, um, you know where those bones are relative to one another. I imagine it's got to be kind of scary working <laughs> with like artifacts so old, like, I mean, exciting, but also kind of terrifying. Like what happens if you, you know, like hold it wrong or I don't, can, can you even really hold these artifacts? Like, well, thankfully, because most of the materials that we're going to expect to find are stone, stone is pretty sturdy. Uh, so it's, it's, it is a little nerve wracking, but it's an exciting opportunity to just demystify those artifacts and to understand for the, the participants 
how to handle them correctly and how to label them correctly and how to identify them in the first place. I know that there has been material uh, at Saqua since my time there that has been found on the surface that to me as an untrained eye just looks like a piece of rock. And when, you know, a trained archaeologist picks it up and says, well, actually, do you see, you know, the the edges or do you see this? And I go, uh, sure. Um, you know, those are things that I don't recognize without that trained eye. So it's equipping people with that trained eye to be able to see them, the difference. Jenna mentioned the, the, the fossil and the bones being terrifying. But for you, and this is your bread and butter, and every day you get to go into the house where all the, some of the artifacts are and you get to see them, how cool is that for you? Like, has it lost its luster yet? Or are you just, like, so, like, yeah, this is my job. Like fangirling? Yeah, this is my job. (laughs) I I do, because it is exciting. And it's incredibly exciting to be part of this organization and part of this process so early in the process. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's really exciting for me to to see the field school come to fruition um, because it's still early days. And so to see a, a concrete result uh, um, of months and months of work is really fantastic, but it doesn't ever really lose its luster. And because we have such ambitious goals for the future, it still continues to be really exciting to look forward to those things like establishing an artifact repository at Saqua. That's work that's currently in process. And one day we hope soon to have the artifacts currently stored at SFU and other institutions returned to the communities and housed at Saqua itself. And is there plans then to make the space even bigger for like the museum aspect of it so right now we're existing or we're right now we're let's start that again (laughs) right now we are renovating the existing footprint of the house it is a house at the moment um and that is a very extensive and expensive process so our first plans and our immediate goals for the next few years are to make the best use of the available space and the available infrastructure on the site now in the future is there a hope that we would be able to expand possibly you know into the surrounding area below the cave or or whatever absolutely um but for now it's it's exciting to look at the changes that are taking place because anybody who's been out to the site, particularly those that have been in the house, will recognize it as a house. And especially over the next year, as we're making those really substantial first changes in the infrastructure, it's going to be an entirely new experience for people. And so I would say even those that have visited us in the last year are going to see something really new and really exciting within the next year. Cool. I'm excited to take my kids again. That'll be fun. I'm excited to go again too, but uh, for anyone that does go, you you need some cardio because I was sweating (laughs) when we were walking up and down that cave. Uh, I want to know, do you have a a rough number of the amount of artifacts that have been cataloged and this is kind of a dual question also you had mentioned there are some artifacts including animal bones that have yet to be cataloged are there a lot of um, findings that have to be cataloged as well in the near future so there is definitely a lot of material that was excavated during those original um, projects that 
there's still work to be done on them. Um, I don't have an exact number on, on the artifacts as a whole. I know that for animal bones, for example, there are tens of thousands that were excavated from the site. Wow. And um, it's only now that uh, that all of those are getting uh, fully identified um, from those previous excavations. And I, I can confidently say that there's enough material currently excavated from the site to keep students and academics and community members busy for, for a lifetime. Um, but as those technologies change, we get to re-examine some of that material. And that's really exciting. Um, for example, some of the bison bones that were found at the site um, were initially surveyed and cataloged and, and investigated. And then as DNA technology improved, they were actually able to extract ancient bison DNA from the bones that previously Whoa. would not have been available. So that's that's really exciting um, for us not only to, to understand the wealth of information that's available, but also the wealth of information that is yet to be found from the existing material and from the new material that we're going to be excavating. I'm so curious about the cataloging and the artifacts. Like I'm just, <laughs> I'm just sitting here like, ooh. Uh, uh, so for me, I, I also want to know with with the the artifacts. Are there once they're found? I mean, we went through the process, but when you re-examine them, is there some that take precedence over others? Like, oh hey, um, we can get DNA from this, you know, bison bone, or you know, this might show us. Um, you know, when the, the first people were there at the cave. Does, does, is that how they kind of go through the process as well? So it's largely dominated by the research interests of the people that do the examining. Um, so the a lot of the initial work that was done by Don Diver and um, Dr. Fladmark was um, contextualizing the site, getting those that going to say basic, but I don't mean basic, a very basic understanding of the timeline of the site. That includes doing radiocarbon dating, for example, to understand that um, the, the basic storyline. Now, a lot of archaeology is done through comparison. And so, for example, when those bison bones were re-examined, they were re-examined in the context of looking at ancient bison from across the world. And it was a researcher that specialized in ancient DNA that said, hey, there's some material in that came from northern BC that has ancient bison dating back however many years. And I'm going to re-examine that part of it. Um, for the ravens, for example, um, that were found at the site, that was instigated by a few people going, wait a minute, there's these ravens that appear to have been placed deliberately at the cave site. Well, let's explore that a little further. And so there is some really fantastic and specialized researchers that each have their own niche interest in the materials. And whether that's, um, documenting a species of lemming that had not been known before these excavations, or if that's uh, potential ties to ravens and their cultural significance, it really depends on what's the, the researchers. And now that we are 
rethinking the way that archaeology and indigenous communities interact, it's also thinking about, well, what questions are the communities interested in? And moving forward, as particularly as the materials are returned to Saquon, we establish a repository um, having control over, like, what questions do we want to ask? And what questions are we curious about is really important. But we also need the people that are trained to do the work to answer those questions or to help answer those questions. Have those questions been laid out leading into the fields uh, study coming up in May? So some of them, yeah. I mean, one of the things that's that's really key for us is just having that baseline understanding of the entire property. And answering that question will lead to others. Um, there's a few things that we're hoping to expect or expecting to, to find that we have kind of procedures for. But one of the exciting things for me is not knowing until you actually get into the dirt. And so those are really great opportunities for us to combine that knowledge with the indigenous communities. Because one of the things that's most key in this this opportunity is for us to contextualize the material through the Deneza oral histories and through the language, through the culture, because that culture still exists and still interacts with that, that territory. I'm curious, how hands-on will you be during the field study? Will you just kind of, I'm just... <laughs> Supervise? You know, yeah, like, are you <laughs> just gonna standing be in there? there? <laughs> are you going to be talking with them while they're conducting it? Or, or how does that work for you? Because again, just having conversations with you, you know, outside of work, this is your bread and butter. You seem excited about doing it, so it must be exciting having the the field study. So, yeah, what 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 um, what position do you play in the midst of it? So, I'm really hoping I'll be able to get my hands dirty <laughs> and uh, and get in on a shovel. Um, that said, I mean a lot of the the work that's necessary for the field school takes place doesn't happen in the dirt. Um, it's coordinating with funders, doing reporting, uh, making sure that we have food to feed everyone that's on site. And so it's going to be really exciting for me to witness that all unfolding. Um, but it's also going to be uh, quite a bit of logistical work to make sure that the run smoothly because ultimately I'm here to facilitate a positive experience for our participants and it's really them that has the opportunity to do the hands-on work and um can we have you on after the, absolutely <laughs> to I'd find love, out what all you found and stuff that, I'd love, that was already rattling around <laughs> my brain <laughs> I would I would actually love to have you come out during the field school and I mean maybe you want to do a live recording I, I was going to ask you about yeah. that after the podcast <laughs> we could come down. I think yeah I think that would be a really great great experience because everyone wants to be a part of it and I mean there's physical limitations to the number of people we can have on site at a given time and their safety considerations both for the people that are involved and the artifacts that are going to be coming out um, but we are hoping there'll be opportunities for the community to engage with us and so I would just say to anybody who's interested follow us on Facebook um, reach out to us and keep watching the local news to get all of your updates on how you can become involved. With Saqua, and we talked about Doig River, Prophet River, and West Moberly owning the site, how how do decisions get made between all three bands? 
That's a great question. So the CEQA Board of Directors is made up of three representatives, one from each of the communities. And that's really important for understanding both how the the community has evolved, but also how those communities are personally invested. And so when we make a decision, um, everything goes through the board of directors. And when it's perhaps a challenging discussion, discussion or um, something that needs a little more consideration, then it goes back to chief and council, back to the communities. Uh, we just finished, for example, a, a week-long consultation period uh, for our interpretation, design, and repository strategy. So the community is involved at every part of this process. And whether that's through one-on-one -on -one meetings, us stopping into a community fair, um, or or engaging at Saqua itself, um, that's really key. So having the board of directors is important for ensuring proper governance and that we're meeting all of our obligations as a society and that each of the communities has an opportunity to be involved. But it's also more than that. It's an opportunity for us to stay connected to the communities that ultimately invested, you know, their time and their money and their efforts into making this site um, come to fruition. Well, our last question now, uh, we ask to all of our guests, what does reconciliation mean to you? So on a personal level for me, reconciliation is about revisiting my previous assumptions about the land that I live and work and play on and giving space for Indigenous people to make their own decisions about how their history is represented, how their culture is recognized. And at Saqua, I think it's a really exciting opportunity to see reconciliation but also resilience in action, because this is a, a opportunity that has been led by the communities themselves. And these oral histories, which talk about the Oninachi, the giant animals, back from the ancient days, 12 and a half thousand years or more ago, have persisted despite the challenges that have been faced by our communities. And so to see that um, continued and really thriving despite the many challenges is really exciting. So for me, that ties in with reconciliation in myself on a personal level, but also the community as a whole, better understanding the communities that that exist here, that continue to exist here, and that have an ancient relationship with the land that really continues today. Well, thank you, Alyssa. And uh, we'll be talking again soon. And I'll be bugging you <laughs> a lot about the future <laughs> of Saquon. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> That was such a fun episode with Alyssa and I learned a lot and you were kind of like fangirling yourself a little bit in there. <laughs> well, I've had a couple conversations with Alyssa, you know, outside of even work uh, and the podcast. And honestly, I just have a lovely time nerding out and just listening to what she knows about Saquon. So it's cool 
that we were able to bring that to this platform and share it to the rest of the region and maybe people across Canada who don't know about Saquon because it is a huge, huge deal. Yeah, huge historical finding, huge. One thing I wanted to mention too is Alyssa, during the podcast, she had mentioned how people can go and visit Saquon. And I just want to say, if you want to shoot her an email, if you're looking to book a time to go and see the Heritage Society, to go and see the cave, T-S-E-K-W-A-H-E-R-I-T-A-G-E at gmail.com. That's Heritage at gmail.com. It goes right to Alyssa. Also, you can give her a call at 250-224-7906. Or if you're driving along and you're like, hey, I really want to see Saqua. I just want to, I just want some, some culture today. I just want to learn. And you go up to the gate and you see the number and you give her a call. She's either going to say, oh yeah, come in or eh another day. Make sure you guys subscribe to Before the Peace using your favorite podcast app or at energeticcity.ca slash podcasts. If you have a guest or program idea, email us at beforethepeace at moosefm.ca. Thanks for listening to this energeticcity.ca podcast. Energeticcity.ca is your only local and independent news in Northeast BC. To help keep us independent and to support this podcast, go to energeticcity.ca slash join.